With over 24 years of multifamily experience, Ken Gee is on today to talk about how his investing strategy reduces risks and capitalizes on huge returns. We'll also dive into the current real estate market and what types of opportunities Ken is most excited to take advantage of. This is the Passive Real Estate Strategies Podcast, where we educate career-driven individuals who have tapped out their earning potential, learn about passive real estate investing so you can continue building your wealth without compromising your time or taking on more responsibilities. I'm your host and managing partner at Realm Investors, a multifamily syndication group who has helped multiply millions of dollars for our passive investors. Thanks for tuning in and let's get on with the show. Hey investors, welcome back to another episode of Passive Real Estate Strategies. Today, I am sitting down with Ken Gee. Now, Ken has more than 24 years of real estate, banking, and private equity experience. He's been involved in more than $2 billion of transactions, a lot within a sector we're familiar with, the multifamily space. So Ken's now in Florida doing a lot of value-add projects down there. And so Ken, man, we're excited to have you on the show. I'm thrilled to be here. Hey, so tell us, uh, you know, how did you land on multifamily? Have you guys always been in the residential space? I mean, 24 years is a, a long time to be in this game. Have you branched out to a lot of other assets and niches, or have you always been in the residential game? Actually, I started out in multifamily, and uh, I have not wavered. Maybe we've had one small office building, but okay. uh, I love multifamily. It's what we know. It's what we uh, have gotten really, really good at, and uh, after 24 years, I mean, if you're really good at something, you should probably stick to it, right? Yeah, yeah. I think you know more now more than in the past couple of years. Um, I've been hearing more and more people like now is the time to branch off into different niches. They're kind of exploring those things or they're diversifying mm-hmm. what they do a little bit. Or, do you guys see that happening with you guys in the future, or are you blinders on multifamily full speed ahead, no matter what happens? Yeah. So. Um, I, I, I can't, I mean, I, I can't, I, I learned a long time ago, never to say never because yeah. <laughs> every time I do, I, I'm sorry, I said it, but we, we have no intention of, uh, mm-hmm. leaving multifamily space. I mean, it's what we know. Uh, if I can get, you know, 15, 20, 30% annual returns mm-hmm. on, on a relatively low risk asset, like multifamily, like how, how much more do we need to earn? Right. Yeah. Um, and in order to do that, I mean, you're just the the risk just goes up considerably. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've really gotten good at mitigating these risks. I mean, not, you know, no guarantees, but we're pretty good at mitigating these risks and people need to always need a place to live no matter what's happening in the world. And uh, we stick to growth markets. So usually in our world, I got that demand supply imbalance in my favor. And, yeah. uh, I, you know, I'd like to leverage that. Yeah. And do you feel like like if somebody's listening right now and let's say they don't have a specialty in an asset class, maybe they're just starting out. So they don't have like, hey, we're multifamily or hey, we're industrial. They don't have that expertise or that knowledge. Mm -hmm. So just purely from an asset class perspective. And do your best to be unbiased. But multifamily guys, of course, and whenever we're in our niche, we have finders there. But as unbiased as you can as you can make yourself, do you feel like multifamily knowledge removed from the equation? Is the the better risk adjusted asset class and other asset classes, or do you feel that there's different risk pros and cons to, to multifamily versus other asset classes? Like, where do you think they on just a purely asset class level multifamily lands on kind of that risk spectrum? 
Yeah. So if you don't mind, I'll drill down a little bit into that question because it helps you understand how I get to where I am. So when you look at the at the very top of this business, mm-hmm. I like diversified revenue streams. Yeah. Right. So if I have a single tenant facility, a single tenant warehouse, any kind of triple net, I'm completely dependent on one person for my income. And I just don't like that, right? You you know, everything's fine until it's not in those situations. Yeah. You're either doing really well or you're doing really bad. So yeah. I like diversity in my revenue stream. So mm-hmm. with multifamily, with multi-tenant office or retail, you have multiple streams of income. Mm-hmm. Now in the multifamily world, as long as you have it located next to Disney or next to a military base or something, usually that revenue stream is from a diversified yeah. bunch of industries. If you're mm-hmm. careful about where you buy. So you can see I'm I'm trying to mitigate a risk here. I'm trying mm-hmm. to mitigate the risk that my income is going to go down. So what I mean, I would have to have large scale, you know, massive problems in the economy in the locality that I'm at in order for me to be significantly impacted. Right. Mm-hmm. So I start with revenue and the diversity of that. The next thing I go to is, okay, how can I destroy this demand for my product? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I look at the different asset classes, even think like office right now, right? I mean, that's the one everybody's watching because yeah. they believe as leases roll, people are going to scale down their requirements mm-hmm. and you're going to have tons of vacancy, right? I can make a case for demand destruction in a big way in office. You've seen uh, you've seen it before in warehouse, depending on where you're located. Mm-hmm. You've seen it even in medical, right? With some of the more uh, tele telehealth type services, mm-hmm. they don't need as much office space. So you see... I'm looking at trying to find an asset class that I can mitigate that risk. Retail is another one. Retail. So yeah, you have lots of smaller retailers in your strip mall maybe, right? But the problem is they're smaller retails that are usually very economically uh, vulnerable, right? In recessions. See, I go back. That's what brings me always. That's what brings me back to multifamily because I I can't figure out how to eliminate the need for people to have a place to live. Mm-hmm. And as I really think it through, if no one needs a place to live, well, I'm probably not worried about my investments anymore. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I got a really big problem. So so I care about that multi-revenue, that multi-source revenue stream. That's the thing that I want people to, to really go after and look for ways um, to for asset classes that just don't seem like you can make a case for them going away. Just mm-hmm. don't make the invalid assumption that you know, oh, I'm next to a military base, man, this is never going to go away. Well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been around for a long time. I've seen military bases literally just with the stroke of a pen go away or deployed. All the people get deployed overseas somewhere. Well, there goes all your tenants. So yeah. that's kind of why I get to multifamily. I'm a pretty risk averse guy. Hmm. And uh, again, if I go back to, if I can generate 20 to 30% annual returns on an asset like this, man, I, I don't know. I'm, Looking yeah. for a reason to go somewhere else. And everybody understands apartments. I mean, they just do, right? Mm-hmm. You probably lived in one in your life. You probably, if not, you know somebody who has. So, it, yeah. you know, it's it's kind of like the devil that you know. Yeah. So I think those are all, you know, pretty common, especially reasons why a lot of people tend to at least start in some type of residential investing. The mm-hmm. kind of common denominators, maybe they are accidental landlord. They think, oh, I would, would like to do this on a bigger scale. They buy one or two more homes and they buy a duplex. And you know, next thing they know, they have this bunch of residential space. And a lot of people never get out of that mindset. They never go into the industrial or the office building or the flex space. Right. I mean, that's that's 
totally fine. But so many people understand the residential game. That's just comfortable for, for many. So in your time, just with so many years of experience, has the the game of investing in multifamily changed a lot? Like, have you always been this value add investor where you're buying something, you're putting in something to force equity, force appreciation, and then exiting or possibly refinancing? Or is that a relatively newer strategy to compare to somebody who's been in the game as long as you? Yeah. So normally what happens is people will evolve as they grow up in this business, so to speak. Usually in the earlier years, they stick to value add. Then they start to migrate up the quality chain, right? So they start to go from C to, to, to C plus, to B minus, to B plus. Next thing you know, over time, they might end up with the A-class properties um, for whatever reason. Usually it's because they're a lot more expensive. And as they've made more and more money, they can actually buy the more expensive properties. I mean, let's face it, if everybody could own class A, they probably would. I actually, we are in that middle space, that B minus to B plus space on purpose. And it really is demand supply driven, mm-hmm. right? So if you think about it, like look at Florida, there's a lot of people moving to Florida. We know that that's pretty well established. Even before the pandemic, that was true. Well, some of those people are wealthy and there's tons of building going on in Florida. And that building, those new properties, those beautiful resort-like amenity type properties, those are going to the wealthier people. Mm-hmm. But most of the people moving, they're just normal, ordinary people. They need a place to live. That's where I am. But guess what they're not doing? They're not adding to supply because they can't afford to, right? They're adding to the A stuff. They're not adding to my product. Mm-hmm. So now I have the opportunity to service this massive group of people coming in. They want affordable housing. And guess what? We're going to make it really nice, affordable housing, and stay considerably below the A space. So my demand, my the risk of my demand destruction from overbuilding is it's not, I can't protect it 100%, but it certainly is mitigated. Now go below where we are and you go into the lower income type properties and we we operated them. We know what they're like. The problem is when you get to a recession, who gets hurt first? Those guys, because they probably yeah. work in, you know, restaurants, bars, you know, whatever, the lower income positions in any recession tend to be the ones that get hurt first. And there you are with a bunch of residents in that lower income piece. So you're more uh, impacted by a recession than we would be in the middle. So it's very purposeful. So am I going to migrate up? I mean, I'll, I'll continue to migrate up the quality chain, um, right? We, I mean, we just don't do stuff today that we would have done 15 years ago. We just don't. We, we just know it's really hard to make money in that space. Yeah. Okay. And so you, you a lot of it is operational it sounds like part of it is operational, but part of it is buying power, right? At some point, it's just not realistic for this newer person to come in and buy these class, maybe B plus or A minus properties. But that class C, C minus value add building that's, you know, 40, 50 a door is pretty manageable. I mean, they're just different tenant bases. Is that why you see a lot of people move up along that chain as they progress? Yeah. So in terms, if you're the, if you're the owner, the sponsor, the investor, you move up that chain because the further up the quality chain you get, the easier they are to manage, kind of. Yeah. Okay. And they're more expensive. So most of the stuff that we buy is somewhere between one and two hundred a door. Yeah. I mean, it just is. I mean, it's not, it's not at the, you know, we I, I can't remember the last time I bought something at 40 or 50 a door. Maybe it was in Cleveland or something. I, I don't yeah. know. Uh, but it's been a really long time. For us, it's about demand and supply mm-hmm. for people coming into the market. 
It is all about that demand supply imbalance. You see, the first 10 years our company grew up, we were in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. That demand supply situation is the opposite in Cleveland. So if I need a new tenant, I got to go steal it from the guy next door because there's not a whole lot of new people coming into the market. Flip that around and go to Florida. I, I don't steal tenants from anybody. There's just a solid stream of new people coming yeah. to the state. And I always have somebody waiting at my front door to rent for me. So it is really all about demand supply because when you have demand exceeding supply, then you have a little bit of pricing power that you don't have in the opposite situation. Hey, investor, really quickly, I hope you're enjoying the show. If you have topics you want me to cover, questions you want me to answer, or guests who you think would make for a great and educational episode, email me with my email in the show notes. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, no, I love that. And so when you are going through these class B properties and, and for the investors listening that, you know, they, they see decks all the time, right? And, and sometimes it's it's more exciting to invest. Oh my God, look at this great, you know, class A trophy assets, uh, you know, mm -hmm. returns may or may not be as strong as, you know, class right. B or class C value add property. What types of value add components are you looking <laughs> to put into most of your class B? Like what are, are there amenities? Is it mostly interior, exterior renovations you're seeing that are needed? Like, how do you maximize that class B asset? Yeah, that's a great question. So we usually, I, I love to improve amenity uh, packages. I just love it. I love to create outdoor kitchens, grilling centers, outdoor TVs, outdoor sitting areas. I want to create a, you know, sort of a scaled down resort version of what the class A people are doing, right? Because now what I do is I give my leasing people a story to tell. Imagine here comes the family. They want to move to the property. There's a swimming pool. Kids are in the pool. Dad's watching a football game on the TV. Mom's working out at the fitness center. It's lunchtime. He goes to the grill, which is right there. He cooks lunch. Everybody has a great family lunch right there at the pool. Then they flip around. You know, dad goes and works out, whatever it is. All right. Maybe the playground's next door. The dog park is next door to it. The point is, I love that amenity, mm -hmm. that, that whole package, because it gives people uh, our people a story to tell and people love that because you can't you can't even put all that in a single family house without spending an arm and a leg so yeah. even though they're in an apartment they're getting all these massive benefits mm -hmm. the other benefit to doing it that way is i only have to spend that money one time mm -hmm. so then i have to go make my units i just have to make sure we don't let them down when we get to the units right yeah. so so many people i see flip that whole model around and really make the inside of the unit beautiful and don't do much of the outside Problem is, I can't get the people to the front door because they yeah. just they, they can't get excited about going to the front door. So you've got to actually start from the outside and work your way in. That is what we have found to be the most successful. Interesting. Is it something that you look at specifically? Because um, I think the reason why some people maybe don't focus, at least on first, on the exterior is because it's hard to put a dollar amount there. Like it's easy to say, hey, there's another thousand square foot unit over there. It's it's you know a thousand bucks a month. They have granite countertops. Okay, that means if we put in granite, we should be able to charge a thousand. But you know, it's very easy to do that one-on-one -on -one analysis. So how do you calculate that? How do you, is there a dollar amount that you've seen, or if you say, hey, if it just doesn't have these amenities, we're gonna do it regardless because we've done this so many times. We know that we can increase price by this amount. Like, how do you really gauge the the return on investment like that? Yeah. So what, what we try to do, we look at this whole renovation process, this whole improvement process holistically. Mm -hmm. I try every potential renter comes on to the property and they're immediately forming opinions about how they feel, what they, you know, will they be embarrassed to bring their family and their friends there? 
and how will they feel about living there, right? That's what people do. They they establish that feeling right up front. I mean, they don't they don't say, oh, okay, the outside doesn't look so good, but I'm sure the inside is going to be done. They don't do that. Yeah, they don't. If you're out, if your exterior is so bad, they will just keep right on driving. It <laughs> yeah. turns into a no show. So from experience, we know that. So now what we do is we say, OK, let's look at all. We, we spend a lot of time surveying the market. We look at our direct competitors. We look at one tier above and one tier below. So mm-hmm. that we really and then we look at the luxury. Right. So we want to see, OK, here's where our property is now. If we improve the amenities and do certain things to the interiors, I'm not saying we don't touch interiors because we do. We're just more, we have to nail down that exterior because I know because we've been operating for 25 years that it does me no good to put a million dollars inside that unit if I can't get that prospect to the front door. So that I got to get the people to the front door. So now I say, okay, here's where the property is now. As soon as I improve it, it's going to be competing with a different competitive set. And now what is that property going to be able to command in terms of rent, taking into account amenities, utilities that are included or not included with the rent, the, you know, the condition of the units and the upgrades in the units. Now, where am I going to be at? So it really is a holistic approach. I wish I could tell you it's a formula base. It's more about a feeling when it comes to some of that. But if you just think about you're, you're a prospective renter driving around, what renters do is they 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 sort of rank these units, these properties that they look at. And they absolutely form their initial opinion right away. I mean, they just do. So that's why we focus on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I like the the logic of that. And just that that funnel, that cycle where everybody's going to go through the outside and you, you might have a lot of no-shows if your curb appeal is not, mm-hmm. not great. And so if you have a lot of no-shows, that could be something that you even want to consider. It's maybe not your sales process is bad or your follow-up is not there. Or you forgot to remind them of the appointment, but they just never walked inside. So, okay. I, I like Yeah, they that. were there. They just kept driving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been through quite a few cycles then. Yeah. Um, and we're, depending on who you ask, coming up on one or in one, it's past, you know, I don't know. Everybody's got a different opinion of it. Mm-hmm. What is your opinion of where the market is right now are you still excited? Are you taking a step back? Are you waiting a little bit to see how things play out? Or, you know, based on your experience, how do you feel currently? Yeah, I'm actually more excited than ever. Um, the time to actually, this is my opinion, uh, the time to be cautious was two years ago when cap rates were super depressed, you know, compressed, when interest rates were super low, because now you could pay a lot because you could afford to, right? Yeah. Now that cap rates have really expanded uh, in some markets more than others, but, you know, rates are considerably higher. If you can do your deal now with interest rates where they are now at a cap rate that makes sense and and make the deal work, um, like think about it in Florida. I mean, insurance market has never been worse in Florida right now, right? It's probably going to get better. The interest rate environment, most people think interest rates are going to go down, right? Most people don't think they're on this trajectory up. They, they just don't feel that way. So if you can buy now, you're going to still be disciplined and have your value add business plan, which we will always do, but you're actually going to get some wind to your back because you're going to get some cap rate compression if interest rates give you any relief and insurance rates come down a little bit. Because, I mean, I watched this cycle over the last couple of decades. Yeah. It goes on all the time. The problem is it is hard to buy when it feels a little sketchy, right? It just is. That's human nature. 
But if you look at the people that came into the market in 2010, 2011, they killed it, mm-hmm. just killed it. Well, it took some big kahunas to jump into the market then because it was hard to get credit. It's becoming more difficult now to get credit because the banks are getting stressed out. You know, there's yeah. all there's a lot of the same things, not for the same reasons. We're not headed to where we were in 08. I, I would be shocked if that happened. But I really enjoy these times because although what we have, you know, kind of is got the values got hurt a little bit. We're going to climb out of that. I'm, I'm not worried about that at all. I yeah. want to buy as much as I can right now. The problem is we can't find anybody willing to sell right now because they don't want to take any little yeah. hair because <laughs> they also believe rent prices are going to go back up. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's something that I've said, you know, on this show and on, on other uh, podcasts that I've been on and other interviews I've been on is, you know, I think almost everybody will do fewer deals this year yeah. and probably next year, but the deals will, will be better. Um, I mean, deal flow, you know, the, the faucet shut shut off. We were getting you know, 15, 16 deals a week in our inbox. And now, you know, maybe we may not even get that in a month. Um, yeah. People are just sitting if they don't absolutely have to have to get out of them. But that's right. You love the phrase when when they have to sell it. That, that's what you really are looking for. Yeah. So, and even if they don't have to sell, I mean, if we can just buy at a, you know, at a normal going in, even cap rate, you know, even leverage uh, with some upside, we'll buy it because we know that's going to pay off. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Ken, I think this has been really, really valuable. You know, love what you guys are doing and the insights that you bring and all the experience that you bring with it as well. Um, what are you guys working on now that you're excited about and how can people learn a little bit more about you guys? Yeah. So we're raising uh, another blind pool fund. Uh, that uh, is going to invest in the same exact deals that we've been doing for 25 years. So a value add B space growing markets, our target uh, annual rate of return is 15%. Some of that's a preferred return. Some of it, most of it is when you sell the asset. We try to beat that 15% return, but we usually do, but you know, there's no guarantees. Um, To learn more about what we're doing, you got to go to kripartners.com slash invest. So kripartners.com slash invest. That'll give you access to our fully vetted uh, verified track record through Veravest. You can see we've done 25 years worth of deals. You can see all of our returns and they've, you know, vetted all of those things to make sure that they're right. You know, testimonials, just all of the the legal docs you need to see. And, uh, and of course, maybe a 20 or 30 minute webinar that talks, it's me telling you exactly about what we do how we do it and why we do it. Yeah. So kripartners.com slash invest. And then back up a second, Blind Pool Fund, can you briefly explain why that's different from other funds or syndication, yeah. exactly what that is? Yeah, so syndicators, usually when people start raising money from from uh, someone other than friends and family, they, they call, they're called a syndicator. So they'll go out, find the deal, lock it down, and then go out and raise the money to close the deal. That's a syndication they they do the whole presentation for the property. People are investing in that property. Um, that was hard. We flipped to the fund model, and I'll tell you why. In Florida, everybody we're competing with were all syndicators. So we're trying to find a way to differentiate ourselves. Yeah. Well, guess what? Funds do the opposite. We go raise the money first, mm-hmm. then we go find the deals. Guess what? That makes us a massively stronger buyer. Sellers and brokers know we've already raised the money. There's no equity raise risk. Yeah. If rates go up against us a little bit, so we'll just put more down because we have it. Mm-hmm. See, we have a massive advantage. So by in our world, you invest in our fund. Our goal is to have two to three deals inside of every fund. So you get some diversification. 
the last the last one we did, we put a deal in Tallahassee, Daytona, and Bradenton, mm-hmm. all inside the fund. Huge, you know, huge diversification in terms of uh, location and building type and everything else. So and, and that, so is is there a difference between a fund and a blind pool fund, or are they the same thing just for anybody out there? Well, they're kind of, yeah, but a, a true fund. Now, lots of people say that when they're syndicating, they're raising a fund, but they're really not. They're raising a syndication. Yeah. A fund is truly a blind pool fund, it means you make a commitment to invest with us and you trust us to make the decisions to what to buy. We just call the capital when it's ready. It's a private equity model, excuse me, that that has been around for, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, maybe something like that. Yeah. But that's that's the model, right? You're no longer making a decision on every single asset, whether or not you're in or not, yeah. right? You're trusting us. And that's why we like to do the same thing that we've done for 25 years. Because if you invest with us, you want to have a clue as to what kind of deal we're going to do. And you know, because we've been doing it for 25 years, you could see all the other deals that we've done and they all follow the same pattern. Yep. Perfect. So listeners, we're going to put uh, all those links in the show notes. You can follow those, connect with Ken. He's an awesome, awesome guy. And while you're in the show notes, if you haven't already, make sure you download our free book, The Definitive Guide to Passive Real Estate Strategies, where we do talk about syndications and funds and REITs and, and all those uh, all those magnificent ways to invest passively. So Ken, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's it for today's show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're looking to learn more about passive real estate investments, make sure you head to our show notes and download our free ebook, the definitive guide to passive real estate strategies, where we reveal the ins and outs of the truly passive ways to invest in real estate. We'll see you on the next episode.